0: There's an enormous amount of information that's embedded within the electronic health record system that's collected during the routine course of clinical care that can help us with understanding complex research questions related to health care. But the challenge is understanding the biases in these systems, the data quality, missing data, and other concerns about electronic health records. And sometimes people who aren't familiar with how the data are collected or what they're meaning might misuse or misinterpret the results. key thing people have to learn when they're using electronic health records what the data really means and how to translate that into something that will ultimately improve human health.
1: This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health.
2: Inspired by health technology from the age of five, Griffin Weber has pursued this path both doggedly and joyfully. Now an associate professor of medicine and bioinformatics at Harvard, Griffin spends his days doing what he loves, leveraging technology to pragmatically improve the health and the care of patients. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunin, And I'm David Shewitz. And today's show is sponsored by Manat Health. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat, Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. So, Lisa. Yes, David. All right. Well, so first we want to uh, tell listeners to uh, stick around after the show for an important update uh, about tectonics. Second, I want to ask you for basically your quick pulse check. Are you more optimistic or pessimistic about the future of technology and health than you were when we did our first show in 2015?
1: Well, first of all, I cannot believe we've been at this for over five years. It's wild. Um, Second of all... Uh, I, you know, I I thought about this question a lot and I went back and forth between (laughs) optimistic and pessimistic. So I'm going to say both. Um, On the one hand, it's really clear that there can be great strides taken, you know, towards health by using technology, whether it's in the biotech realm, the data realm, the digital health realm, you name it. I mean, and if this year, you know, has been the proof in many ways of that, right? I mean, just the speed of developing vaccines, the speed of adoption of telemedicine, things that really have helped people. And I think that's great cause for optimism. On the other hand, I have been so um, aggravated <laughs> by the abundance of piling in to the to the digital health, quote unquote, realm, and the, the, the unbelievable amount of me-tooism and the, you know, persistent lack of both design thinking and problem solving among young companies that I see and continue to see, there's great, there's greatness and then there's lack of greatness. And that really hasn't changed. In fact, I think it's in some ways gotten easier to start companies and has made it more complicated on the landscape. So, um, and, and yet the adoption curve in many cases hasn't changed much. Um, so I, I'm, I'm both, you know, I really feel like there's good here um, but we have to be careful uh, of the uh, gremlins on the sidelines.
2: Wow, that's that's a fantastic answer, Lisa. <laughs> so I'll just say what she said, um, and I uh, will <laughs> go on to meet it again. But always, both always a smart answer and uh, also uh, very accurate, um, especially in this case. So to our guest, welcome, Griffin. Hello, hi, Griffin.
1: Yeah. I'd be curious
2: <laughs> about thing- your
0: thoughts on that point.
2: Yeah, before we get going, um, are we better or worse off than we were five years ago?
0: I think we are a lot better, but um, you may not realize it. I think what's happened a lot is that people realize the importance of health data. You can't turn on TV without seeing counts of COVID cases, deaths, state-by-state graphics. I mean, it's always on people's minds now, and family members are talking about numbers and data, and they kind of understand what I do now. It was kind of (laughs) when I would... Say in the past, I'm working with uh, like hospital electronic health databases and doing research with them, you know, sort of blank spaces. Like, they don't understand what I'm doing, but they get it now and the importance of it um, has, uh, has, uh, has jumped up. Uh, there's, there's a risk of people misinterpreting and overusing these systems. That's where the challenges are. But um, mm-hmm. from my perspective, it's opened up a lot of opportunities in people thinking about electronic health record data and what could be done with it.
2: Wow. I can't wait to get into all of this. And um, that's a very thoughtful answer. So to go back to the beginning, um, like apparently George Washington, Griffin grew up in Virginia, uh, the son of a, a mathematics professor and a professional artist who had left New York City, but his parents retained their affection for this city, expressed... Through life-size renderings that seems lifted from subway stations. I actually wanted you to explain it because it's like the coolest form of art, Griffin. Um, what what would I'm talking? What apropos of nothing except it's really. Uh, I, I'm not even going to try to connect it to anything, but it's fascinating.
0: All right. So my my dad was a mathematics professor, and he it's hard to get tenured positions. So once you get an offer, you kind of take it. So he received um, an offer to teach at a college in Virginia. And my parents grew up in New York. Our old family is over there. So they moved to Virginia and they had a job, but they were very homesick. And uh, my mother, who is trained as an artist, um, uh, in, in Virginia, people make lots of paintings of sailboats and ducks, and that's not what New York City is about. So they would make paintings in New York City, in particular, in particular subway stations. Um, I live in Boston where... Um, Uh, people aren't as fond of the subway stations there but people have really nice memories of New York City subway stations. There's a lot of mosaic designs and other interesting architectural features of the subways. They started making these paintings, life-size paintings of New York City subway stations where they would take these special glazes and put them on the tiles to what looks like raised real tiles. There's a gloss on it and there's the posters, advertisings the, in the subway stations, the molding. Um, so it looks like someone took a chainsaw and chopped out a big five foot by six foot chunk of the wall of a subway station. So other people who are left New York, moved to Florida, and are homesick would buy their favorite subway station, Times Square, Madison Square Garden, um, other things that helped them remember what it was like living in New York. And uh, they were very popular. Over the 30 or so years they've been doing this, I think they sold about a thousand of these paintings. A lot of celebrities, uh, bank owners, other um, people uh, have, uh, have, these, have these paintings. Their favorites. There, there, there were some paintings um, back in the days in the lobby of Trump Tower. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, from from there to other places. there's lots of interesting stories along the way. My mom taught my dad how to paint. And uh, my dad retired early um, from his teaching career and then, the last decade or so, they um, both been painting together exclusively. They moved back to New York as soon as they could.
2: <laughs> That's uh, and now they're painting pictures of uh, sailboats and ducks, no doubt. But uh, <laughs> um, so, um, so many of our guests, perhaps even most of them, describe a career of wandering and exploration, arriving at the intersection of health and technology after a long and winding journey. For Griffin. Not so much. He seems to have, uh, have, do you like that, Lisa? He seems to have known uh, pretty much exactly what he wanted to do when he was five or six, doggedly pursued this vision, and now is living it. Um, So, uh, Griffin, what drew you as such a young kid to uh, health tech?
0: As early as I can remember, I was interested in how things worked, taking things apart, understanding um, uh, the engineering sort of behind things. I didn't know the word back then, um, but there are two things that happened when I was around five or six years old. Um, one was artificial hearts were first coming out. And there's new stories about it. And I remember there was a picture in the newspaper that I cut out and put onto the wall of my bedroom. And then there was a book um, written by Jonathan Miller. a 3D um, book of the human body. We can open it up and see the heart beating by pulling a little lever or, or see how the muscles move. And so everybody else happens. had like
2: Cheryl Teagues and he had like a Jarvik 7. <laughs>
0: So it's fascinating because it's just paper, but it shows you how with pieces of paper engineered the right way, you can get the same kind of movement that you get in the human body. And I could understand through that as a five or six-year-old that it's all mechanics and science and, and chemistry, and you could take a human body, which seemed like the most complicated machine out there to me, and you could piece it together and figure out how it works and actually do things to fix it and make it better. And that idea in my mind kind of stuck with me forever. And it made the path easier because I had lots of interest, both in the arts and math and music. Um, but I knew in the end what I wanted to do was combine that technology, engineering, design with, um, with medicine. So I was able to think about what kind of career I wanted and step backwards. Whether, where did I need to go to school and college? Yeah. In order to get to that college, what did I have to do in high school? Right. And what did I have to do in elementary school? So I was kind of always on this path um, to where I ended up today.
2: It's so funny because um, that clearly was your North star. And it's very funny because like on this podcast, like my, my, the theme I keep coming back to is how you don't, I certainly keep telling my kids, you don't have to know what you want to do. Most people don't, but you can. And uh, so here, so I'm going to tell my kids of all the podcasts that we've done to be sure not to listen to because they won't listen to the one with either of them. Well, kind of interesting because it's so much
1: the opposite half <laughs> yeah. of our last guest, Matt Wilsey who, you know, went from government to tech, to biotech, you know, right, right, exactly,
2: exactly. It's yeah. so, um, so you went to college um, uh, at Harvard. So um, as Lisa would say, that qualifies you to have uh, been invited to the show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's that or Berkeley apparently um or brown, I guess everybody uh, goes to brown um uh, yeah. like from, uh, but anyway so you you went to college of Harvard and in where naturally you decided to pursue bioengineering yet over time and inspired in part by your interest in design, it sounds like uh, your interest evolved from sort of more traditional bio uh, engineering to other stuff. Uh, could you uh, tell us about that
0: Yeah, i got a i, I got my first computer was a Commodore sixty four when I was seven years old, and I started learning how to program it and I really thought about computers as like games. I wrote computer games. I always thought there's like something like a Microsoft hospital, where hospitals just <laughs> had a program that did all the things that you needed to a hospital. So I never really thought of computers as a career in medicine. But as I got into college and was uh, doing biomedical engineering, I learned more and more about the needs of computers in hospitals. And I enjoyed more the design work and the data analysis work in engineering than actually like drilling holes in a machine shop. So in college, I started working for different labs and hospitals, um, building computer software to help taking care of patients and for um, doing medical research. And I realized that's, that's how I wanted to combine technology and medicine as opposed to bioengineering. I was more interested in computers and medical informatics. It's intersection with health.
2: So it sounds like, um, like this worked out um, uh, pretty well for you. You. Um, uh you, you, were, you, were, you were interested in, in combining um, both of those. Um, uh, what were some of the early projects? I think you, uh, you started um, uh, uh, digitizing, um, you, I mean, this was really early days. So like you, you were like digit, I guess maybe it was in medical school, right? Where you like digitized a course catalog?
0: It was even earlier than that, I think between the, my summer, between my freshman year of college and sophomore year, um, there was a, um, like a summer internship program for undergraduates at um, a hospital research center in Virginia. Um, I went back home for the summer. And my job that I signed up for was envisioning like a future electronic health medical record system. So oh, my. my job was to go around to different doctors and hear what they wanted in the system and draw pictures. or just pictures of what it might look like. But this is 1996, and the first year where Microsoft came out with a tool that allowed you to connect a website to a database. So uh, I'm young and people don't think about like how hard things are or not. So I was able to go and get some sample data from the hospital and on Netscape data, I think it was, I was able to create a little demo where you can go to a web browser and you can see patient records and the doctor I was working with on this internship grabbed me in a meeting with the CEO and the CIO of the hospital and they said, Griffin, show them what you built. I'm like, 19 is all the time. And I type in a medical record number into Netscape and the stuff comes up. So um, you know, no one had seen anything like that before. I think Harvard um, was building similar kind of things, but is was just brand new. And um, they asked me to extend this from a little pilot to a whole hospital system. So I built the hospital's um, first web-based um, electronic health record when I was nineteen, and that led to lots of other similar kind of projects, both in Virginia, and then ultimately at the Harvard affiliated hospital.
1: What were they trying to achieve with that effort? Because you know, there's all this discussion about how EMRs were built for billing, not really for patient information. You know, not thinking about the patient, and thinking about the doctor. What What were you guys thinking about at that time?
0: Back then, it was compliance. The, the there was electronic health record system, but the archive was on spools of tape. So if you needed to go back to a patient's record, you would load up the tape, and it might take hours in order to spool through that tape to get to a patient's um, uh, medical record. So, you know, it was in archive in theory, but you really couldn't in, in the course of a clinical care, be able to retrieve that information.
2: Was it to elevate clinical care or was it to accurately uh, de- determine billing? Well, these
0: are archived old records. So there was going to be more for um, uh, clinical care. There were other systems in place for collecting new information and billing there, but um, for uh, compliance, they needed mechanisms of being able to retrieve um, archived old patient records. And there wasn't any easy way of doing that. Um, and uh, you know, the, the system was went to the IT department and put in your request and then a few days later they're able to um, go through these spools of tape and pull it out. But at this point, someone could just type in a medical record number and see all the patients archived um, laboratory tests and medications that um, were ordered for the patients. And you know this was pretty new. And it's not just an application someone had to install on your computer, you can just pull up your web browser and go to a URL and be able to um, see the patient's information. IT could add a new page to that website. They didn't have to go to everyone's office computer and install the new sure. version of it. So this is, this is um, really new. And you know, obviously the question came, well, who built it? You did to go to Cerner or something. No, Griffin built it. He was a, <laughs>
2: freshman. <laughs> so you, like, you know, you continued, you know, you, after, after college, you went to um, a medical school, you know, in, an HST program, um, health science and technology at Harvard. Um, and were interested. Now this is, this part is just sort of like blows me away. Um, because obviously this is before there was a uh, whoever said, you know, oh, data scientist is the sexiest profession of the 20th century or whatever, because <laughs> this was before that. So you're in the HST program. you were interested in pursuing a PhD in computer science. And basically, in the context of that combined degree, you were literally told something like, this does not compute. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, you want to do like molecular biology, like I did, like, sure, that's great. But you want to do computers and medicine? I don't get it. Tell me about that. <laughs> what so you- I, as an undergrad, I said, I... Yeah, what year was this, 1430? This is, I,
0: was, I was applying I was applying to medical school in, in 1999. Wow. So this was now several years I was building for dozens of labs and hospitals, these computer systems. So I saw this is such a huge thing. It was just going to grow. So when I was applying to MD-PhDs, I was requesting a PhD in computer science. And um, this was sort of a weird concept to most medical schools. There was a few um, programs, as Columbia and others, had medical informatics programs or students doing PhDs. They kind of understood it and they had a track for me. A lot of institutions said, uh, we're not interested in PhD in computer science, so why don't you do bioengineering? That's what you did as an undergrad. Um, Harvard was sort of in the middle. Um, They said, you know, we're not going to help you, but if you apply to medical school and independently apply to the engineering school for computer science and get into both, you can do an mdph We're happy to bask in your re- We're happy to bask in
2: the <laughs> so, reflected glory of our brilliant people. I got it. <laughs>
0: so,
2: we won't so, got so to you, but yeah.
1: <laughs> it's funny because like yeah, when I 1998, I was um, engaging uh, so just one year ahead of you on that in the, my first venture fund focused on healthcare and technology, and where they intersect, right? And it was um, I was told by a lot of folks at that time that that was utterly stupid. Like what a waste of, you know, for time and who would ever put those things in the same bucket. And, um, uh, you know, I think back on that now and you just think how, how fast things really do change, right? It's, it's quite remarkable.
2: So it's so interesting. It, it, it is an amazing pace of change. For you, Griffin, it sounded like um, uh, in med school, like, you know, you continued, you really liked your research. Um, and then, you know, uh, with this joint degree and, um, and you liked clinical, but you started thinking that you could contribute more by working on research full time than trying to split your time between clinical and research and not quite living up to your potential in and either and, as you saw it. Um, and, then, and then by the end of med school, you got an offer you couldn't refuse.
0: So I think a lot of, lot of what I've done during my career was um, seeing problems I had and trying to solve my own so you know that first medical record system was i was dealing with these spools of tape and it looked, seemed seems so awful compared to what you can do on you know in a modern web browser so when i started harvard medical school you know the first day they gave me five three inch binders paper binders of all the stuff i needed for my classes yeah. so each morning i had to flip through all these binders to figure out where i was going to be where my uh where my tests were going to be about you know i'm carrying around all this thing all day so um that first semester of medical school, I built a, um, a website called my Courses that um, had sort of an online website for each of the classes I had, plus sort of a combined thing. So on one page on the website, you could see a calendar with all the places you had to go to, one kind of agenda with all the uh, things you had to do. Um, and I showed it to the professors that my class had. Um, I, I asked them if they could enter stuff into it, which they did. Um, And then um, John Halamka, another um, uh, well-known health informatics person, was hired uh, at Harvard Medical School to um, build the same kind of thing, basically a course portal for the the medical school. But he he saw about my system that I built for a handful of the classes, and uh, he asked me to team up with him. And by my second year of medical school, all 500 courses were on this platform,
2: And And talk about the offer you couldn't refuse. Talk about the offer you couldn't refuse. Right. So after I built the course portal,
0: then they asked me to build the school intranet, the school's public website, the registrar system. So ultimately, you know, most of the you know computer systems there, and a lot of the hospital systems, you know, I had some role in it. So at the end of medical school, um, John Halamko and uh, the the deans at the time um, put together an offer for me to. Um, be the chief technology officer at Harvard Medical School and also have a faculty appointment and uh, be able to set up a research lab. And uh, you know, my dream was to have both kind of a clinical role and a, and a research role. And this, I would have to give up residency. But then when I thought do I really want to do an internship and a residency or do I jump to where I really want to be running computer systems for hospitals and uh, having a research lab. So you know, I don't think anything less than that would have um, uh, convinced me to kind of give up the clinical side of things. But um, the uh, that was that was kind of the dream of what I really wanted to do, and um, uh, so I took it.
1: Have you ever looked back from that? Have you ever thought, "Wow, I really wish I'd you know done clinical service of any type"?
0: No, because you know, the way I kind of thought about it was, I saw all my medical school classmates, and they're going off to uh, to have clinical roles. And if I was going to be a surgeon or if I was interested in radiology, there were many other people who were doing that and doing it really well. But there were so few people who were in medical informatics and had the skills for it. So I thought, you know, I could could probably contribute more to medicine doing that than I ever would be able to doing something else. I could probably be a very good surgeon or radiologist, but a lot of other people could fill that role if I didn't do that. But um, if uh, the work I was doing in medical informatics, I thought was really unique and I can excel
2: in that. So Griffin, so you you did so many interesting projects and involved in so many collaborations and, but if there's a theme, it's really been, you've really become like an expert in the electronic medical record and trying to extract useful information from it. I really wanted you to be able to talk about, almost to recapitulate a conversation I know we've had, where you explain what some of the misunderstandings are about what the EHR is and isn't, and why it's so hard. To people are like, oh my gosh, there's so much information there. It should be so easy to just, you know, you know, sort of to, after Matt Damon to like science it and come away with great insights. But that's not been the experience. Why is that? So
0: early on, I had lots of projects where I was working with electronic health record data. And when you start looking at data, it looks like it's terrible data quality. There's also some missing information in there. You only have half a patient's record. Um, uh, there's, Uh, incomplete things, weird stuff in there. And the kind of question is why? And then eventually um, you sort of stare at this data more and more. And one thing was nice about a medical student is that I had an opportunity to work at lots of different hospitals and see different kinds of electronic health record databases. And I sort of saw differences between them and things that were common across them. And one thing to realize is that uh, an electronic health record system isn't so much a record of a patient. A physician doesn't sit down and try to enter in all everything that's ever happened to the patient and and validate and make sure it's nice and clean. That sometimes happens in a clinical trial database, but not an electronic health record database. Electronic health record is really a record of the physician. It's a record of the patients that the physician saw, all the labs that they ordered for those patients, the treatments they did. It's a record of sort of the thought process that a physician had. And when you think about things that way, a lot of stuff makes more sense. So the, the missing data problem with electronic health records often goes like this, you know, it's missing half of the visits that the patient had because they went to a different hospital. So none of those visits are represented in my EHR data. But it's not a record of the patients, it's a record of the physician. Uh, the EHR at the hospital has every visit that that physician had with patients. It's not missing any of the visits. It includes all the visits that were performed at that hospital. If you think about it that way, the data quality problem goes away It's more what are you trying to what is the EHR measuring and what are you trying to get out of that like if you went to a bookstore's um, database of people who bought books and you're trying to ask what kind of medications those customers had because oh it has terrible data quality it's missing all their medications so it's not supposed to have the medications it's not a patient database it's a bookstore database same kind of thing And EHR is about the about the providers you get weird things out of that. So a couple of years ago, I studied where we saw that um, patients who have a normal white blood cell count at three o'clock in the morning have lower three-year survival rates than patients who have an abnormal white cell count at three in the afternoon. So normal patients in the middle of the night are worse than abnormal patients in the afternoon. And so why is that? And you think it's kind of strange. It doesn't make sense from a patient point of view. But when you think about the Provider, the only reason why providers ordering a white blood cell count at three in the morning is because they're really concerned about the patient. Even if that laboratory test comes back normal, something else is probably really wrong with the patient. Whereas, just the way normal ranges are defined, 5% of healthy patients in the afternoon are getting routine blood tests that come back abnormal. Um, So, over the majority of laboratory tests, the time of the day, the day of the week, is it a weekend or a weekday? Um, the time interval of seeing things are more important than the actual values of these tests and predicting their outcomes.
1: But over the last, you know, I want to call it 10 years, maybe, it seems like people, you know, and I, it doesn't seem like I know that people are trying to use the data to the EMR for so much more than what you're describing, which is just to, you know, sort of characterize uh, physician visits, if you will. And yet EMRs have not, really um risen to the challenge of doing more right they there's little bits here and there there's some open notes movements you know there's this and that there's other products that have been dropped on top of emrs uh much to the reluctance of some of the emr companies but it, it doesn't seem like there's an alignment of interest between how people want to use the data and where the databases are going or am i mistaken
0: so well, again, I think it's because people are thinking that they're gonna be able to learn everything about a patient from those databases or just mining the data and you're learning about the patient, but it's all intertwined. It's both the patient's pathophysiology as well as what the physicians are doing with the patients. And you have to tease that stuff apart. Um, when, a, uh, when you're looking at a, a patient's chart and you're looking at cholesterol levels, for example, and trying to make predictions of them, the patient who's in the ICU, um, isn't getting their cholesterol ticket and the patient in the ICU who's getting blood gases, um, you, know, you don't need to know the value of the blood gas. The fact that they're being ordered a blood gas is telling you a lot about the patient. So there's kind of connection between the thoughts of the physician and what's actually going on in the patient. If you're not aware of how that data is being um, collected and how it's being generated, you're missing the point. You know, are at to these weird biases and misunderstandings and when people build AI models, Um, artificial intelligence models based on EHR data, uh, the predictions may be off or weird or it doesn't translate well to other institutions because they think they're modeling the patients and what they're really doing is modeling processes within the healthcare system.
2: To Lisa's point, what is the solve for that?
0: You have to make sure you're using the right data for the kind of question you're asking. There's EHR data, which I said is kind of a record of the provider and what they're doing. There's medical claims data, which is more capturing the, the patient's history you can ask different kinds of questions. So if, if you want to know, uh, as a hospital that um, uh, has a new process for uh, washing hands, for example, to, or sterilization, um, an EHR database can give you um, good temporal information about before that, uh, uh, that intervention occurred and after, so you can see how the patients within that institution their health before and after that event. If you're looking for a long-term um, effects of a, on a patient, of a treatment on a patient's health. And the medical claims data may give you better information through that. And sometimes you need to link these databases together, both to be able to get the in-depth um, laboratory test results, physical exam findings in EHR, as well as the longitudinal data in, in the claims.
1: So are we are we doomed that this there can never be one system for all this data? It always has to be like this because I really had hoped that we would find ways to get more meaningful patient-focused data out of health systems, right? And it it seems to me like we're stuck in this kind of permanent, you know, wasteland on data from that front.
0: Well, it's putting the right things together. So the EHR data has really valuable information, but again, you need to understand what its limits are. There's other things like patient-reported outcomes, um, wearable devices. These are all providing additional information, which you can link to EHR data to get that more complete Picture of a of a patient.
2: I, I want to go back to what I thought was a really inspiring and resonant comment you made uh, in an earlier conversation. I, I was asking you, well, you know, hobbies and interests, and you said, well, on the one hand, you don't really have you know specific hobbies, but on the other hand, you said you've positioned yourself to do what you love. And you get to do this every single day. And I I just love that sentiment. It certainly resonates to, you know, actually, as we know from our show, from my folks, um, from other people I know who are really passionate about what they do, where, you know, you get to do what you love every single day. Is there anything you wanted to add to that sentiment?
0: Well, I I used to have a lot more... It's hard to do things now when I have a family. And I had other hobbies, like drawing, other things. And I try to sneak those into my career. So in addition to my more mathematical type papers that I write, I've written a couple papers that um, have been well cited that look at visualizations. How do you visualize the landscape of big data and health, or how do you visualize translational science? Um, So some of these data visualizations allow me to um, take that artistic side of me that came from my parents and, uh, and merge it with the more technical work that I'm doing. Um, So, so I, I hope I can sort of, um, uh, get the bo- best of both worlds, um, both, you know, the, the main folks in my career and, and sneaking in hobbies.
2: Do you know whose footsteps you're following if you do that? I, I, it came out in this book I uh, recently reviewed for the Wall Street Journal. Um, Florence Nightingale turns out she was a pioneering data scientist, both in terms of data collection and in terms of recognizing the importance of a data visualization and presenting things in a compelling way to uh, persuade folks. Women are always first. There you go. Um, so with uh, all these sentiments in mind, uh, we really are um, appreciative of you joining this show and to uh, continuing to inspire and drive so much positive change.
1: Thanks a lot, Griffin.
2: Well,
0: thank you.
2: Well, that's really interesting. He's, uh, it's funny because we have so many people, right, who, you know, Kind of, like you're saying uh the previous guest with Matt you know kind of evolved to what they did but he kind of is like laser focused and happy about it you know it's kind of um I mean God bless right if you know what you want to do and you've uh, you've done it that seems terrific you're right it's so interesting
1: I mean I guess it points to like anything can happen, right? Including the thing you set out to have happen.
2: I always thought that his understanding of EHR data is so important because Mm -hmm. people just want to view it as, okay, well there's data and they see, here's a field that's filled in. But if you don't understand what I would call data, empathy if you don't have the empathy and understand the story of the data and you don't contextualize it it's so easy to be misinformed and i think that's a major thrust of his research
1: i agree with you that was that was actually really poignantly said i mean i think especially when you think about the ai implications of that considering that there's you know at least 10 billion companies who are working on ai you know deriving their data from ELRs, um and how exactly. that by definition we always talk about the biases and the data from a, like a men versus women or, or, you know, an ethnic standpoint or whatever, but we rarely talk about the differences from uh, what was it intended to do standpoint. So that's quite interesting. Exactly,
2: And I think, uh, you know, one of the reasons, for example, I know I always, I always cite this example, I think Amy Abernethy was uh, singularly successful at Flatiron was because I think she deeply uh, understood that. So, uh, as we mentioned up front, Lisa, we have an important update on Tectonics. Would you like to share with our uh, listeners? I will.
1: So David and I have been at this uh, with our producer, Jason Lopez, so the three of us, the three uh, po- podcast cateers, I guess, for uh, five years now. And we've had uh, well over 100 shows and had a wonderful audience. Um, and we have decided it's time to take a bit of a pause. Um, we are going to have this last show uh, that you just listened to. And we're not sure uh, if we're coming back or when we're coming back, but we're thinking about it and thinking about how we might refresh the format, how we might refresh the concept and uh, refresh ourselves in the meantime. (laughs) Um, It's been a real labor of love. This show's been super fun uh, and has caused us to meet uh, some incredible people or get to know ones we knew uh, way better. And it's really led to lots of opportunities uh, beyond that. And so we're grateful to the audience and to Jason and to the sponsors we've had through the years. And Absolutely. we will uh, keep you posted on our next adventure. And to
2: each other, I've, uh, I have i think this has been an extraordinary experience. And I'm Absolutely. so grateful for the whole thing. Um, please remember to, um, still remember to uh, rate us on your uh, podcast app, leave a comment, help others uh, still discover the show.
1: You can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timberman
2: Report, his writing in the bulwark, and his occasional book reviews in the Wall Street Journal. And you can follow the... Always and ever inimitable, Lisa Sunan at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health
1: integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper.
2: Yeah, I feel like we said, well, we're gonna do the show until we get that um, entire uh, attribution right. And now we both did that today. So maybe that's that's a sign. Uh, Tectonics is produced by connected social media and recorded in quarantine. We wanna give a particular enthusiastic and appreciative shout out to our absolutely fantastic producer, Jason Lopez, and to all of you, our listeners. I also can't sign off today without saying out loud how incredibly fortunate and grateful I feel to have had the opportunity to collaborate with, laugh with, laugh at, and learn so much from the absolutely incredible, insightful, and kind, Lisa Soonan, a really, really good person, and of course, a great co-host.
1: And I will second that uh, shout out to Jason Lopez and also to David, who has been a great partner uh, in, um, good spirit and good fun and great learning and has, has made, uh, this an incredibly, uh, rewarding experience. Uh, hopefully we will f- find our path, David, for our next great event yeah. together. All right. Be well. Bye everybody. She, she was cold cold <laughs> dark night. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> We're rolling. Whatever, man. Yeah. <laughs> I like the spring it's like when the it's people hit, 24 hours. It's like hitting three your three head against the wall here. just to be
2: happy when it stops. <laughs> time travel alone can be a major barrier for patients taking part in a clinical trial. Through our alliance, hey, hey, with have signed. You said time travel, not travel time. <laughs> okay, we'll try it again. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Okay, all this future stuff. And then finally, multiple years.
0: Multiple years.
2: And then finally, the sick. Sheep's sick. Sheep sick. (laughs) Sally sells. She sells by the seashore. I gotta put up with this guy.